Welcome back to Vandenberg Flash Focus, your source for fast and focused foreign policy analysis on breaking news around the world. I'm your host, Samuel Byers, here today with Luke Coffey to discuss the military situation in Ukraine, the fight brewing in Congress over additional U.S. military aid, and the course of the Russia-Ukraine war as it approaches its second anniversary. Luke is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he works on issues related to Europe, Eurasia, NATO, and transatlantic relations. He has previously served as an advisor to the UK Ministry of Defense and in the House of Commons. He is a veteran of the United States Army and deployed to Afghanistan. Luke Coffey, welcome to Flash Focus. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Uh, Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, Just to start out, uh, it's been a little while since uh, the Russia-Ukraine war has been in the headlines for most of our uh, most of our uh, listeners, most Americans um, for the past month. I think, you know, Israel and Gaza has been dominating the foreign policy headlines. Uh, Can you give us a brief sketch of the situation on the ground in Ukraine as it stands today? Of course. Well, just because uh, the war hasn't dominated U.S. headlines doesn't mean that uh, there isn't serious fighting still taking place across Ukraine, mainly in the south and the southeast of the country. So as we uh, as most people will be aware, Ukraine launched its uh, much awaited 2023 counteroffensive late spring, early summer of this year. This was on the back end of two very successful counteroffensives. In late 2022, uh, which saw Ukraine liberate huge chunks of territory from the, the Russian invaders. So I think expectations were very high uh, heading into the summer of 2023 counteroffensive. But it hasn't gone as quickly as many had hoped. I think uh, this is for a number of reasons. We, we, we Firstly, we, we watch too many Hollywood movies where we think these things just uh, run smoothly and progress swiftly. When in reality, these are very complex military operations spread across a front line that, if you stretched it out, would go from Washington, D.C. to Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, So uh, on top of this, the Russians have had a a lot of time to build up defenses, lay minefields. And in in the meantime, we've been very slow at providing Ukraine what they need to be successful. But nevertheless, the Ukrainians have made some progress. It's just been slower than many had hoped. Uh, but but that's on the land. On on the sea, on the maritime front, there's been a lot of success. The Ukrainians have conducted a number of successful strikes against the Russian Black Sea Fleet uh, that's based in occupied Crimea. And they've been so successful, in fact, that commercially available satellite imagery has shown most of the Russian Black Sea Fleet moving away from occupied Crimea and to safer bases in Russia further away from the Ukrainian, uh, you know, weapons and, and, and systems. So it's been a mixed bag. But overall, I think the war is trending on the right direction. We just have to be aware that this will be a long war measured in years and not months. So complicating that picture is the fact that the congressionally approved budget for American military aid Uh, is about to run out. Uh, Congress approved a a big lump sum earlier this year, which the executive branch has been parceling out, uh, you know, every several weeks or every several months with a new a new aid package. Uh, But the Biden administration said earlier this week that uh, it is limiting the size of aid packages going forward in order to stretch what's left of the presidential drawdown authority budget as long as possible. Uh, what can you tell us about that and what kind of consequences will this um, 
this resource constraint and this stretching of the budget have uh, for the Ukrainians? Well, the timing of this is crucial. Uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive is still uh, continuing, so they haven't culminated, which is a, a technical military term, meaning that they've reached the limits, they've exhausted the, the limits of their resources. So the, the, the counteroffensive is still happening. It's just happening, uh, at progressing slower than many had hoped. We're heading into the winter months in Ukraine, where there is no doubt Russia will be um, uh, preparing uh, a number of airstrikes against civilian uh, infrastructure targets, such as electrical grids and power stations and, and whatnot. And the Ukrainians need to beef up their air defenses and prepare for that. And then we're also uh, already thinking about what Ukraine will be doing in 2024, militarily speaking. And all of these things require not only U.S. support, but U.S. and European uh, financial, economic, and military support. And the United States plays a key role in all of this. Now, some argue that America is doing too much and Europeans need to do more. This actually is a out, very outdated argument. As of the summer, the European commitments and uh, resources sent to Ukraine are now double that of the United States. And as a percentage of GDP, the United States actually ranks behind 20 other European countries in terms of our assistance. Europe has really stepped up to the plate. But America has a key role in all of this, uh, providing the weapons and the assistance. And this money is running out. So it's becoming to the point of negligent on the behalf of the U.S. Congress that they can't get their act together and get additional funding secured for Ukraine. Because really, at the end of the day, it's not for Ukraine. It's for the United States, because this is in our interest to make sure that Ukraine is as successful as possible on the battlefield against Russia. So, yeah, you mentioned the debate um, in Congress and, and that they haven't uh, passed uh, a new aid package yet. Uh, this week, they averted a government shutdown right before leaving for the Thanksgiving holiday. But of course, they did not pass the pending emergency aid bill uh, for for Israel and Ukraine. Uh, we know the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, he's been critical of USAID to Ukraine in the past. But since becoming Speaker, he's also indicated a willingness, I think, to bring a Ukraine aid package to the floor for the vote. Uh, what do you think is the likelihood of the House passing another aid package before the current money come, runs out uh, later this year? I think the prospects are good. I just wish it would happen sooner than later. Uh, Speaker Johnson, if you go back to his very early statements on Ukraine when Russia invaded in February of 2022, he was very supportive. He was very tough on Russia in his tweets and press releases. And then something happened along the way. Uh, which I suspect was uh, party politics, and uh, he he you know started playing this game that well you know it's not in America's interest we can't afford to do so there's not enough accountability uh, with the assistance we provide you know we we've heard all of these usual talking points that the uh, the skeptics use uh, which have been completely debunked but nevertheless they still continue to use some of these talking points but now that he's the speaker of the house uh, this position comes with a lot of authority and responsibility and i think he recognizes this so that's why we are seeing him change his tune a bit when it comes to ukraine aid and i think it's completely reasonable and responsible for him to do so and he should be applauded for this uh, w w without a doubt but right now you know israel is involved in a major land conflict against hamas after suffering one of the one of the worst terrorist attacks of 
of the 21st century and, and certainly for the for the Jewish state. And Ukrainians are involved in a major uh, counteroffensive operation in southern Ukraine to take back territory from the Russian invaders. So I appreciate that Thanksgiving holiday is coming up and it's around the corner, but we can't base our our legislative timetables as it pertains to our national security interests around U.S. holidays. And we, we have to find a way to get the assistance passed in a timely manner, because both with Israel and against Hamas, Ukraine against Russia, and our uh, our defense uh, uh, of ta Taiwan against a possible Chinese invasion or aggression, these things directly impact U.S. national security. This is not charity. This is about keeping Americans safe and our interests secure. And that's why Congress needs to act in a timely manner to make sure that the resources are available for our partners and our allies. Uh, one, one quick follow up on that. Do you have any thoughts? You know, it sounds like you're optimistic uh, about this next aid package uh, passing. But uh, going into the 2024 presidential election cycle, this is something that's being debated in the Republican primary. Are, are you optimistic uh, as kind of the political rhetoric heats up and, and Ukraine becomes, uh, you know, perhaps a sticking point? Are you optimistic about future support um, past this next aid, aid package? Well, if this is a big aid aid package, as many people are hoping, then hopefully we won't have to have another debate in the coming months during the U.S. presidential election campaign on more aid. And that is when it could become a, a big issue for uh, for politicians. <clears throat> However, um, as in terms of Ukraine being a, a major issue for 2024, I don't think American voters are going to the polls on the issue of Ukraine. Uh, you know, and in fact, I think your average American across the country rarely thinks about Ukraine one way or the other, uh, or big foreign policy issues for that matter. They're worried about the the rise uh, uh, of the of groceries, the cost of groceries, high inflation, high interest rates, the inability to buy a first house, the chaos at the southern border, jobs, economy, healthcare, good education for your children. These are the issues that drive voters to the to the polls. I don't think Ukraine is going to feature prominently in the U.S. election campaign unless it's brought up at a specific foreign policy debate or if a candidate wants to raise it. I mean, you look at President Trump's, uh, uh, you know, hour-long stump speeches he gives. Yeah, we might see uh, the 45-second clip about him attacking USA to Ukraine, but the remaining 59 minutes or so is about other issues. Uh, so I think we have to put uh, the issue uh, about aid uh, to Ukraine in, in the bigger context. And more importantly, I think the American people uh, are start they have the right instincts. The starting point is in the right place. Most majority of Americans support giving weapons to Ukraine. Um, for the Republican side, it's a small majority, but you know, consistently polls will show over 50 percent. Uh, and those who are skeptical about providing weapons to Ukraine or aid to Ukraine will will say something like this. They'll say, well, I, I, I want to support Ukraine. I just don't think we can afford to do so. And so the starting point is in the right place. Instinctively, we want to support Ukraine. Americans support the underdog. Uh, most Americans believe in the right of self-defense. It's up to our political leadership on both sides of the aisle to explain to the American public in ways that they understand why it matters and how we can afford to help Ukraine. 
So that leads uh, nicely into my next question. Uh, a few weeks ago, you published a short report through Hudson laying out, uh, you know, 14 key facts about U.S. aid to Ukraine uh, to counter a number of prominent misconceptions and myths uh, circulating in Washington and elsewhere. Why do you think these sorts of misconceptions have become so prominent in the debate over Ukraine? And are there any uh, in particular that you find frustrating or obvious facts that you wish people were were more aware of? Well, the main reason why these myths still permeate throughout the debate about Ukraine aid is because of a lack of communication from the very top. And by that, I mean the White House. Again, I think Americans want to be led on foreign policy issues. And there's not been very good messaging or consistent messaging coming from the White House on why what happens in Ukraine matters to the United States and how we can afford to support Ukraine. When President Biden talks about why Ukraine matters, he uses vague terms like, uh, you know, we need to protect the rules-based order or something like this. Uh, You know, I I don't even know what that means myself. And I do this for a living. So I'm not sure that that phrase really resonates with, let's say, my family in Missouri. So we need to talk about why Europe's economy matters to the United States, Uh, you know, how Europe is our largest export market, And when an American is exporting a product or a service to Europe, that's an American job. And right now, Putin is trying to undermine that stability across Europe that has allowed for the economic prosperity that makes Europe our largest export market. We need to explain it in ways like that, but we just really don't hear it. But some of the myths that just, you know, I just want to, frankly speaking, bash my head up against the wall every time I hear them are the, the, the one about no blank checks that we're sending blank checks to to Ukraine. Uh, Every dollar that is being used to assist Ukraine is appropriated and authorized by the U.S. Congress for a specific reason. There are no blank checks. We're not sending pallets of cash over to Ukraine like, you know, the Obama administration did with Iran in the past. Uh, and, And in fact, you know, vast majority of the U.S. assistance to Ukraine never leaves the United States. It actually stays right here supporting our U.S. defense industry, allowing us to replace the weapons and munitions we're giving to Ukraine with more modern versions, which makes us actually safer in the future. And then also, I I don't like the uh, there's no accountability or transparency argument. Again, this is completely false. There there's probably never been more accountability on U.S. military aid assistance ever than what we have for Ukraine. More than 160 U.S. government officials working across 20 federal oversight agencies with a budget of over $50 million uh, is involved in tracking uh, the assistance, keeping tabs on it. And they say that this this working group that was established has said that there's no evidence of any major cases of fraud, waste or abuse. But perhaps the, the one that really gets to me is and it's one that's gaining more traction is this idea that we're sleepwalking into our next forever war in America. Uh, this is not a forever war for the United States for the sole reason that we're not fighting in it. The Ukrainians are the ones fighting and dying. No American is fighting or dying. Ukrainians don't want American soldiers there. All they want is a fair chance to defeat the Russian invaders, and they want the weapons and munitions to do so. Uh, this idea that it's like a continuation of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan um, is nonsensical. And in fact, I would even argue that the whole forever war 
argument is 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 a fiction anyway. Um, 99.5% of Americans never served in Iraq or Afghanistan. So the idea that the American society was just worn down and is exhausted from these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan is is simply not true. Uh, so I think uh, th these are the three myths that drive me crazy, but there are many more I hear uh, all the time. But thankfully, for those who want to support Ukraine, for those of us who know that doing so is in America's national interest, these myths are easily debunked uh, because they're based off half-truths and falsehoods. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you get down and speak to someone, you can easily explain why what, what they're hearing is not true. So last week, you hosted the head of the office of the president of Ukraine, uh, that's Andrei Yermak, for a talk at Hudson. I'm sure you've talked with other Ukrainian officials in the past. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, your takeaways from uh, from talking with him, from talking with other Ukrainian officials about uh, their perspective and, and, you know, what's their outlook on the future at, at this moment in time? Uh, morale is high. They know it's a tough fight. They're the ones sacrificing every single day, but they're willing to keep fighting to liberate their territory. Uh, you know, they don't need urging or egging on. They, they want to do it, um, and, and they want the weapons and the resources to make it happen, and they understand the costs very well. So that was the one message. The next message was was one of thanks. Um, when I speak, to, when I spoke to Mr. Yermak, and uh, when I speak to Ukrainian officials privately, they're they are very grateful for the assistance that the U.S. is providing. And in many cases, it's you know it's keeping um, Ukraine uh, in the fight. Remember, if Russia stops fighting uh, tomorrow then the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting tomorrow, then Ukraine ends. And that's that's the big difference. And then uh, the, the, at the public event, which, uh, you know, listeners can go to Hudson.org and, and find the, uh, the the video. It's worth watching. The I'll make two, sure to put that in the show notes as well, Luke. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, the, 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 the two big takeaways for me was um, Mr. Yermak was the first uh, senior government official to confirm that Ukrainian troops are now operating on the left side of the Dnipro River. So uh, there has been a successful river, river crossing. There is now a foothold that the Ukrainians are expanding. Many of us had assumed this based off footage from social media, but it's never been publicly confirmed. He was the first to do so at our event at Hudson. And then secondly, his emphasis on President Zelensky's peace formula, which isn't getting much attention or focus, but it, it's worth closer examination. One of the critics of USA to Ukraine by especially the extreme fringes on America's uh, political right says that President Zelensky doesn't want peace. He, he's consolidating power. He won't negotiate with Russia. He won't sit down. He just wants endless war to, to, to get aid and assistance from the West. But in fact, uh, President Zelensky is the only leader that has presented a peace plan. It's a 10-point plan that's perfectly reasonable and realistic, and there's been three meetings uh, to promote and explain and build support for this peace formula over the past several months. The first one was in Copenhagen. The second one was in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, and the third one last month was in Malta, and there's a fourth one planned as well. So right now, uh, uh, senior Ukrainian officials are going around the world to, to build support for this peace plan, this peace initiative that they call the peace formula. 
And it really shows that uh, not only is, are the Ukrainians serious about winning the war, they're also serious about winning the peace as well. Well, to round us out here with with one final question, um, just bring us back to the 30,000 foot level and and remind our listeners, you know, what are the strategic stakes here for the United States? Why is Ukraine important to us here at home? Well, I already mentioned the um, the, the economic connection. Uh, Europe is our largest export market and we get trillions of dollars every year of European investment into our country. And this is only possible because of the stability and security in Europe. And right now, right now, Vladimir Putin is trying to undermine that. The second issue has to do, uh, uh, the second issue on why Ukraine matters to Americans has to do with great power competition. Russia is one of our top geopolitical adversaries. Perhaps there's some in America who doesn't think this, but I'll tell you, most policymakers in Moscow believe this. And right now we are witnessing the Ukrainian military essentially dismantle the conventional armed forces of the Russian Federation. And they're doing so at pennies on the dollar without a single American pulling a trigger or getting shot at. And this is in America's interest uh, that, that this takes place. And then finally, uh, China. Russia and China are partners on the global stage. Anything uh, we can do to weaken Russia will indirectly weaken its partner, China. And China is also watching how we respond with our support to Ukraine because it has its eye on Taiwan. So anything we can do to make Ukraine victorious, in my opinion, will lead to a more secure and safer Taiwan. So all of these issues are, are interconnected. And then, you know, we could even extrapolate many of these points even further out. Let's say, you know, with Hamas and Israel and Iran and Israel, Iran is... Uh, very close to the Russians, providing Russia with drones that the Russians are using against civilians almost every night across Ukraine. Just a matter of days after Hamas's deadly terror attack against Israeli civilians on October 7th, Moscow hosted a delegation of Hamas uh, at the Kremlin and other ministries in Moscow. So, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing our adversaries align and coalesce around this axis of Russia and China and Iran. And uh, we have a few partners and allies who are willing to uh, step up and fight uh, Israel and Ukraine. And we need to support them all the way. And we can and we should and we can do both at the same time. Thank you so much for joining us, Luke. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Samuel Byers, and this is Vandenberg Flash Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Flash Focus is a production of the Vandenberg Coalition. To connect and stay up to date on our work, follow our account on X, at Vandenberg Co., or visit www.vandenbergcoalition.org to learn more and subscribe to our weekly newsletter on foreign policy and national security, Beyond the Water's Edge. Until next time, I'm Samuel Byers, and this is Vandenberg Flash Focus.